0: Uh, My name is Bryce Hales, I'm the pastor uh, here at Resurrection OC, and uh, let me invite you to uh, turn with me in your Bible to Genesis 1, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's a blue church Bible on the ground uh, near you, and you can follow along with me, it's right at the beginning, um, Genesis 1. We started a couple weeks ago a series called Origins, where we are looking at Uh, the early chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, because they tell us, uh, they paint a picture for us of uh, the world that God created, and therefore they help us to understand um, uh, how we flourish best in this world that God created. Um, And so we are looking at sort of the third aspect this morning of the way that God created us as human beings, and so we're going to read Uh, a couple verses from Genesis 1 and from Genesis 2. So if you would stand with me, and I'm going to read Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now turn the page over to Genesis 2, starting at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So out of the ground the Lord Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, And brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And when the man called uh, called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up and closed up its place with flesh and we're not ashamed. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? God, thank you that you are a God who speaks to us. God, you you could have simply created us and walked away or um, created us and remained silent. But we are so grateful that you tell us who you are. And because you tell us who you are, we can understand who we are. Would you speak to us through your word by the power of your spirit this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. So right after Ashley and I got married, the morning after our wedding, we got on a plane and we flew to Aruba for our honeymoon. We were uh, really poor. We had no money. We had no jobs. We had just graduated college a few weeks earlier and uh, the only reason we got to go on a honeymoon was because our parents basically like gave it to us as a gift and um, (laughs) i had saved up enough money to rent a car for the week but we weren't 25 yet and so i couldn't rent a car through like avis or hertz or a reputable um, car rental dealer and so i found some hole in the wall place on the island of Aruba that would rent me a car. And, um, and I thought it would be really cool to rent a Jeep for the week and not just, you know, like a whatever standard compact rental car. And so we got off the plane and we went and we found this hole in the wall rental car place and I was really relieved to discover that it actually existed and that they had a reservation with our name on it and so we picked up this rental car, we got in this Jeep, we threw our bags in the back and we got in the car and buckled up and Ashley goes to pull the seatbelt and the passenger side seatbelt won't like extend. And we decided we've been traveling all day, it's late, we're tired, let's go to our hotel and we'll just deal with this tomorrow. So the next morning, first day of our honeymoon, we wake up and instead of going to the beach or whatever, we have to go back to the airport to deal with this rental car problem. And it takes like, I don't know, felt like 90, like an hour, an hour and a half to get this seatbelt thing fixed. But finally it gets fixed. And then after they had fixed it, I, in my mind, like very gently, very politely suggested to the rental car company that they might want to reimburse us for, you know, you know a little something for my, for my trouble here. And, um, and they said, okay, sure, fine, whatever. He seemed kind of upset about it, but he said, okay, we'll, we'll refund you something when you return the car. And I'm like, this is great. Like, I've been married for a day, and I'm like, getting the hang of this husband thing. (laughs) You know, in my mind, I'm like, I am taking charge, money is coming back. Like, I am the best husband, uh, you know, who's ever been married for 48 hours. (laughs) And I, I get in the car, and we go to pull away, and I'm so proud of myself. And at that moment, my wife looks at me and says, Why'd you have to be such a jerk about that? <laughs> and so we both learned something important that day. Um, I learned that marriage was going to be hard, that marriage wasn't just going to be this easy thing that's a life of endless comfort and fun, but that marriage was going to be difficult. And my poor wife, on the second and third day of our marriage, learned the truth that I had been trying to hide from her for our, our entire dating <laughs> career where I had concocted this elaborate marketing scheme that was basically there to convince her that I was a kind and gentle person. But under the intense scrutiny of 24-7 operation, uh, of observation, I just I couldn't keep up the, the marketing campaign anymore. <laughs> Community um, relationships are hard, and this morning we're talking about relationships in the broadest possible sense. Uh, not just marriage, but we're talking about friendship. We're talking about our relationships with our children and our parents, with our co workers, and with our neighbors. And I tell you this story just to highlight the, the reality that we all know that, um, that relationships are good and beautiful, and yet relationships are hard. Um, relationships are the source of the greatest joy in our lives, and yet they're also often the source of the greatest struggle and hurt in our lives. Community relationships are beautiful, and community is difficult. And we tend, I think, to enter into new relationships idealistically, whether it's a, a newly married husband who thinks he's taking charge and you know, making a mess of everything, or whether it's just a new friendship, you know, somebody that you've met, a neighbor, a coworker, somebody at your kid's school that you, that you, you meet and you kind of have this connection, and you think, man, this is so great, like I finally, maybe not like I finally have a friend, but like I'm so excited about, about this new friendship. So we enter into relationships idealistically and with hope, and yet often, um, uh, you know, after a period of time, like, reality begins to surface its head, and, uh, and there's something awkward that's said, or there's a, uh, there's a moment where it's like, you know, hardness has entered into the relationship, and then we're faced with, with the, uh, you know, what do we do? Do we just, like, stop returning texts slowly over time? Do we stop arranging to get together? Do we just kind of back out of this relationship? Relationships are necessary. They're wonderful. They're life-giving, and yet they're also hard. In 1938, in the middle of the Great Depression, I mean, this is before World War II, um, this institution that you may have heard of called Harvard University began a study. And they wanted to finally, definitively settle the question of what factors contribute to human flourishing. Um, what, essentially, what, what do you need in your life to be happy, to live a meaningful, fulfilling life? And so in 1938, they began to track, uh, initially it was 238 sophomores at Harvard. Eventually the study grew to include 700 men. And for 79 (coughs) years, they tracked these men. I think until maybe the last one of them died actually. And um, to finally definitively discover what factors are necessary for human life. Now, uh, for human flourishing, what makes your life meaningful and happy? Now, how would you, what would you think would be necessary? I mean, we would think having plenty of money, avoiding, um, avoiding suffering, doing meaningful work, being successful in our jobs, but none of those turned out to be statistically significant factors to human happiness. After almost 80 years and spending millions of dollars, they concluded that the most significant factor in living a long, happy life is embracing community. And I think that's um, a profoundly ironic thing because the reality is that one of the most prestigious universities in the world spent the better part of a century and invested millions of dollars to discover the truth that is printed literally on the first page of the Bible. Relationships are wonderful. Community is what brings life, joy, and meaning. And we all know that intuitively. We all know that deep down. And yet I think we're at a strange place in our culture because um, on the one hand, we celebrate the idea of community. I mean, the rise of social media and technology that we all carry around with us constantly that allows us to be in touch with people all the time. Uh, It demonstrates to us that we have this intuitive, innate desire to connect with other people. And yet, study after study reveals that we're more isolated and lonely than we've ever been. Last spring, the Boston Globe published a report with this headline, The biggest health threat facing middle-aged men isn't smoking or obesity, it's loneliness. It's loneliness. The biggest health risk to men, especially, is that they don't have friends. We live in a world where we are surrounded by people. We have all kinds of ways to connect with people, and yet the reality is that we feel more and more isolated. We feel more and more alone. I talk to people all the time who say that, um, you know, we devote so much time to work. I mean, especially in Orange County, right? It's so stinking expensive to live here, that we're doing all that we can to just survive work-wise. But with that comes the sense of guilt that we're being pulled away from our families. And so often, often I think especially for men, but for, for women as well, there's this sense that I have to be working more, and yet I feel guilty that I'm away from my family. And so often the way, I mean, this is, uh, studies are saying this, that often the way we deal with that guilt is by um, signing our children up for more and more activities. We long to invest in our children and that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing, right? But the research indicates that um, sending our children up for more and more activities means that the time we spend together is not actually time connecting. It's time shuttling our children from one activity to the other, and so our time with our children just contributes to this feeling of feeling constantly busy and overwhelmed and never having enough, you get it, right? <laughs> Is everybody depressed yet? (laughs) So here's what we know. Here's where we are. Relationships are beautiful. Relationships are important. Community gives life meaning, and yet it's really hard. Our idealism about relationships is often met with frustration. And when idealism leads to frustration over time, it leads to cynicism. And if you need any proof of that, I just want to... Consider the example of the movie Titanic. Now, Titanic, in what, 2018, is like the best way to make an easy joke, right? Like, it's the sappiest, you just do something dramatic on the front of a boat, or like, it's the best joke ever, right? Like, it's the cheesiest, sappiest movie, and yet it was the highest grossing movie of the 90s, which means that you all went to see it. Like, I went to see it, I took Ashley to see it, in 97, I think. Uh, we all went to see it, and that, like, but it has this just overly idealistic view of love. And yet love plus frustration results in cynicism. And that's where we are today. So what I want to do this morning is give you a different way to look at relationships. A, a, a paradigm that I believe the Bible sets out in Genesis 1 and 2 that is different than idealism or frustration or cynicism. It's a paradigm that is based on the good news about the way that God created us. And there's simply two things that I want you to see in this passage. And the first is this. You were created by community for community. You were created by community for community. Genesis 1, 26, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In the opening words of the Bible, we looked at this in in some more detail last week, but we, in the opening words of the Bible, we see this truth that Christians for 2,000 years have proclaimed, that the God of the Bible, the God who created the universe, is not uh, only a me, God is also a we. This is what Christians have called the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, It's the understanding that the God who makes himself known to us in the Bible and in creation, um is both a, like I said, he is both a me and a we. God is an I, and God is a community. God exists, there's only one God who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what the Bible teaches us is that God himself has always existed in community. There was never a point at which God was alone when God was lonely or when God was bored. And this is significant because Every other religion teaches that God is either an impersonal force, incapable therefore of love, or God is unipersonal, meaning God did not love until there was an object of his affection. There was, God didn't love until he created someone to love. But Christianity teaches that relationships and community are not an afterthought, but they are essential to who we are. Think of it like this, have you ever used the Compass app on your smartphone? Robert has. I was gonna say most of us have never, I have never used the Compass app, okay? And I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that most of us have never used the Compass app on our smartphone, but you know what, it's impossible to get rid of that thing. You can move it away, you can hide it in a folder, within a folder, within a folder, you can ignore it, But it is there by virtue of the creator. And that's the way that relationships work. Uh, You can ignore them, and yet you need them. Because Christianity says that there was never a time when God was not absolutely filled with love. That's who you are. You were created by community for community. That means that you were created to laugh together. We were created to cry together. We were created to communicate and interact with one another. We were created to help each other. In our brokenness, we are meant to correct one another. You were created to support one another and to care for one another. Community is at the heart of what it means to be human because community is at the heart of who God is and he created us to reflect himself. And what that means is that your spiritual, social, moral, psychological, emotional well-being is tied to the health of your relationships. We all know this intuitively, that a lonely person is a hurting person. Um, When your marriage thrives, you know, when your marriage is going well, everything is going well. Uh, When you have friends who know you, who like really know you, and they like you, Like Those two things have to go together. (laughs) But when they go together, life is great. Um, When your relationships with your parents or your kids are thriving, life doesn't get much better than that. When you move into a neighborhood that actually is a neighborhood where you don't just live near people, but you know people, and you walk out your front door and you run into neighbor I mean, that is awesome, isn't it? Life doesn't get much better than that. And when the opposite of all of those things are true, it's hard to even want to get out of bed in the morning. We were created by community. We were created for community. Relationships are at the heart of what it means to be human. They are not um, optional. They're not something that we can um, give ourselves to if we have the time. They're uh, essential to our humanity. So that's the first thing, you were created uh, for community. And I'm guessing that that is sort of like uh, intuitive, um, but the second thing I'm gonna say, I'm guessing is not intuitive to us. The second part of this paradigm for relationships in the world that we live in is this, that you were created for a covenant. Okay, you were created for community, but secondly, you were created for covenants. Now, what does that mean? Well, think about it like this with me. Uh, I can put it like this. It's great to talk about the beauty of relationships and the sense of belonging and the meaning that they give our lives and how we can't live without them when our relationships are going well. Right? It's fun to talk about relationships when they're a source of joy. But what about when they're not? Or it's great to talk about relationships as long as we primarily are thinking of ourselves as being on the receiving end of relational love. Um, you know, if you're going to talk past her about other people loving me, my spouse giving up him or herself to love me, my friends, you know, being there for me, like that's great. But logically, it doesn't hold together, right? Because for every person on the receiving end of relational love, there's got to be somebody on the giving end of relational love. If we want to enjoy great relationships, We must give and not just take. So how do we do that? And what would that look like? And what would motivate us to actually uh, love people like that? Well, the Bible's answer to that question is the word covenant. And we don't really have a concept in our culture and in our time that's analogous to the idea of covenant. The uh, The closest concept we have is the idea of a contract. Uh, but a contract, a contract conveys the idea of something that is legally binding, but it's an impersonal thing. And therefore, it doesn't quite capture what a, what a covenant is in the Bible, because a covenant is a deeply relational, permanent, binding agreement. So where do we see that in the Bible? Well, we see it throughout the Bible. Um, but in this passage, we see it in, in uh, Genesis 2, verse 24, where after God creates the man and the woman... And it says, uh, "A man, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. <coughs> Older translations um, uh, use the word cleave, this idea of leaving and cleaving. A man will, will cleave to his wife. Now, uh, cleaving sounds like we think of like a cleaver, like which means separate. But it, it, it's actually the opposite of that. Cleaving means cling. Um, that The husband and wife are clinging to one another. Um, it's holding fast to another person. The Hebrew word behind hold fast or cleave or cling is the Hebrew word for a covenant. And to help you understand this, I, w- I want to just kind of make a generic, broad statement, and it's this, that throughout history, every relationship e- essentially boils down to one of two types of relationship. There are consumer relationships and there are covenant relationships. Um, an example of a consumer relationship is your relationship to your cell phone provider. Okay? You uh, might have been an AT&T customer for years, and they might actually create like this they, Well, I'll say more about that in a minute. They're going to create this loyalty, this sense of loyalty that tries to convince you that you owe them something, but you don't. <laughs> Because your relationship, my relationship with AT&T, is based on me paying them a certain amount of money to get what I want from them. And if I move somewhere that AT&T's coverage is terrible, uh, I can switch to, I gotta say T-Mobile, right? I, gotta, I was gonna say Verizon, but I gotta go with T-Mobile. Um, I'm, I, I'm you know, free to switch to a different cell phone provider at any point, and AT&T cannot come to me and say, hey, you betrayed me, right? I mean, they tr- they're going to try to say that. But it doesn't work. Because the way consumer relationships work is this that um, in a consumer relationship, my individual needs trump the good of the relationship as a whole. Okay? So I'm in this as long as I'm getting what I want out of it. And the moment this relationship doesn't benefit me, like, I, I leave, you know? Because that's the nature of the relationship. And that sounds cold, but like, that's your relationship with. Uh, with everything that you consume and there that's there are appropriate and right relationships um, for you to treat that way but what you really need to see is is in contrast to a consumer relationship is what is a covenant relationship so if a consumer relationship is a relationship in which my individual needs trump the good of the relationship then a covenant relationship is the inverse of that a covenant relationship is a relationship in which the relationship trumps the needs of the individual. And to illustrate that, think about the relationship of a parent to a child. Um, It is absolutely insane, in fact, it's criminal to think of a parent looking at a child and saying, I am only in this as long as you give me what I want out of it, (laughs) right? You can go to jail for that sort of behavior. Because the essence of a parent-child relationship is as a parent, before you ever saw this person, Before you ever laid eyes on them, before you ever held them, you were committed to them. You were all in. You knew that you were not having this, you were not starting this relationship with this new human being because of what it was going to give you. But rather, you were becoming a parent in order to invest in the well-being of this other person, no matter what it costs. The essence of a covenant relationship is that you put the good of the relationship above your individual needs. Now, it's obvious, isn't it, that different sorts of relationships call for different levels of commitment. I don't owe my neighbors the same level of commitment that I owe my children. I don't owe my friends the same level of commitment that I owe my spouse. But the problem that we now have as a culture is that the consumer paradigm of relationships has so dominated our, our lives that we really enter into every relationship with consumer lenses on. And the result is that our relationships suffer. Our relationships suffer. Um, there was a moment in Breaking Bad uh, if you haven't seen Breaking Bad, you probably don't want to, but uh, I think it's the, <laughs> the best thing that's maybe ever happened on television. It's about this high school chemistry teacher who becomes a drug kingpin. And for a while, um, Jesse is, uh, Walt is the teacher kingpin, and Jesse is sort of his uh, lackey, for lack of to a better term. And towards the end of the series, like things are dissol- devolving and they're not going well. And Walt's trying to figure out how to get out of town, but he's got this problem because Jesse knows everything. And so Walt comes to Jesse and tries to adopt this sort of like fatherly, father-like, like, I really care about you, Jesse. And Jesse's not doing well at all. And, he, and Walt says, why don't you just like get out of town? You know, why don't you just go to like Alaska, like the middle of nowhere where no police are gonna ever come and talk to you, right? And Jesse looks at Walt with tears in his eyes. And he says, for just one minute, can you please stop working me? For just one minute, can you pretend like you're not using me to get what you want? Now, that's a very blunt way of stating that. But when we enter every relationship... Saying, "What do I get out of this relationship?" <coughs> that is essentially the way we are treating human beings. We are saying, "I'm willing to be close to you as long as it benefits me." <coughs> and the result is disastrous. The irony, like I said, is that advertisers would really like us to think that our consumer rela- think of our consumer relationships in covenantal terms. This is why they create rewards programs and loyalty programs. AT&T wants me to believe that I'm violating a covenant (laughs) when I choose to uh, switch to T-Mobile. That it's an act of betrayal. But what we need to do if we're going to experience the relational satisfaction that God says is very close to the meaning of life, is we've got to enter into relationships as covenant makers. I mean, imagine the difference. I mean, this is obvious in a sense in marriage or parenting. Um, But imagine if you moved into your neighborhood with the idea that I'm not going to get bent out of shape every time my neighbors do something that annoys me. But that part of being a neighbor means other people's lives affect the way that I live, and that's actually a good thing. That would be beautiful. Listen, I'm not saying you should um, (coughs) sign a legal agreement with your friends. In fact i would really urge you to not do that like that would be super weird if the second time you hung out with a new friend you're like okay well this is our second date and so i want you to sign a legally binding covenantal agreement to invest in this really yeah, okay. and let me just be clear like there are reasons to leave covenantal relationships um when there's abuse and manipulation but at the same time, like let's not make the exception uh, let's not make the rule based on the exception, right? What if we didn't enter into every relationship with consumer lenses on, and we started by saying, "Hey, I'm going to continue to invest in this relationship, even when it doesn't give me exactly what I'm looking for." Because the reality is this: that every single relationship that you have ever been a part of if it's lasted for more than a couple of weeks, you have got to a point in it where you're like, this doesn't do for me what I want it to do right now. Like every relationship feels like it's going to be great on the front end, and there will always be a moment when reality will surface its head, and you're like, I don't like you that much right now. And what are you going to do at that moment? Are you just going to, like I said, stop returning texts and stop hanging out or get divorced or... Um, find another church or my conviction is that you're not actually in a real relationship until you've actually sat down and said you said this I felt this I'm sorry will you forgive me the beauty of relationships usually comes when you've weathered something together and sometimes that means going through an experience side by side but sometimes that means going at it face to face and getting to the point where you've actually gotten through I used to be a college pastor and I would tell college students that you're not actually friends with your roommates or your friends or whoever until you've survived your first argument because until then you don't know that they're not just like working you when your friend offends you sure it's easier to slowly back out of the relationship but the power of the gospel comes into play you ask for and offer forgiveness. And there's no match for the security that comes on the other side of that conversation, knowing that I don't have to agree with you all the time in order to be your friend, in order to know that you've got my back. That's beautiful. But that requires entering into a relationship, saying, I'm in this for the good of the relationship, not just because of what I get out of it. Now if you enter into relationships like that, you'll enter in realistically, and so you won't be surprised when people say and do things that hurt or offend you. And when you hurt or offend your friends, you won't simply bail on them. Over the past, I don't know, two, three weeks, our, um, our staff at our church, we meet together on Wednesday mornings And I don't know, it's been like relatively a peaceful, um, like I really love our staff. (laughs) It's great. Uh, And we've had, since the fall, we've just had this great time of peace and working together and it's been great. And like our last couple of meetings, we've gotten to a place where, I don't even know if conflict is the right word, but just like there's just been disagreements, right? And people with different points of view. And you might look at that and say, that's like, oh, that stinks, That's, that's a bummer. But it's actually a really beautiful thing to come to the table and say, I trust you enough to disagree with you. I trust you enough to, to say, to put my cards on the table and say, I don't actually agree with what you just said. And then to walk away and know that you didn't just say that because you don't like me, but you've still got my back. And we've all agreed and we're all moving on together. Or in, um, my wife and I have kind of um, we just developed this like shorthand phrase. Um, where we just remind each other, I'm on your team. And the other day, I, I don't know, I got home from work, and uh, my children are really loud. <laughs> and um, it was just one of those days where, you know, you could tell it was like, it was grating on everybody's nerves, and I walked into the house, and instantly, and I'm, I just want to like, everybody go away and fix it. And my wife looks at me and says, it doesn't really feel like you're on my team right now. And like, that's all she had to say for me to go, no, I am on your team, and thank you for reminding me, and I love you, and we're in this together. See, great relationships are not relationships where we never argue, where we never have conflict. That's not real life. Great relationships are relationships where we go and saying, I'm in this relationship, even when it doesn't do for me what I want it to do so that's great but the question is how are you ever going to do that like how are you ever going to get that kind of love to come out of you what you've got to see is that the essence of Christianity is God entering into a covenant relationship with us The God of the universe comes into a relationship with fallen, broken, fickle, self-centered, selfish, gross human beings like us. And he says, I'm in this for the good of the relationship, not because of what I get out of it. And so Jesus came, he took on flesh, God in the flesh comes and he lives a perfect life to show us what perfect love looks like. And in the garden of the Gethsemane, only hours before his crucifixion. He goes and he prays and he prays to God the Father and he says, God, if there is any other way to accomplish this reconciliation between human beings and God, can we please, can we please go with plan B because I know what's coming and it does not do for me what I want. But then he says... Not my will, but your will be done. Because at the essence of creation is a covenant between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, in which God says, We are going to create human beings and love them no matter what it costs. And so Jesus goes to the cross. And on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, God the Father turns his back on, abandons his son. Why does he do that? Well, on the cross, Jesus takes our place. And so every act of relational failure, of backstabbing, of gossip, of just weakness, manipulation, betrayal, it all hangs on Jesus, and it's gross. And God the Father turns away turns his back on Jesus. Why does he do that? He does it because he is exchanging places with you. God turns his back on Jesus so that he will never turn his back on you. And when you know the unfailing, unending, deep, abiding, relational, covenant love of God for you, then you can be a friend that sticks it out even when it's hard. You can be a parent who is faithfully calm with your children even when they're driving you nuts. Uh, you can stick with it in a marriage that just doesn't seem to be working when you see that God has been covenantally faithful to you when he could have consumed you only then will you stop looking to all of your relationships and asking what does this do for me and begin to move out in love and say I'm committed to the good of this relationship I'm committing to loving you even when it doesn't um, serve me even when it doesn't do what I want it to do. And the byproduct of that sort of approach to relationships is actually what gives life meaning. Let me finish with this. Um, Show of hands, who's ever been to the Waffle House? (laughs) Okay. If you don't know what the Waffle House is, The Waffle House is like, the closest one's in like Arizona, I think, so uh, the Waffle House is scattered all across the South, it's usually next to a truck stop, Uh, it's open 24-7, they serve um, really greasy food, and um, they make McDonald's look fancy, okay, you get the picture here? And so Anthony Bourdain, um, who's like a food writer and, you know, whatever, on his show Parts Unknown, he travels around the world um, talking about food with famous chefs. And there's an episode of Parts Unknown, where he is in um, Charleston, South Carolina, eating with this award-winning chef named Sean Brock. And they're sitting at this upscale, you know, white linen tablecloth um, restaurant in Charleston, South Carolina. And they're talking, and Sean Brock discovers that Anthony Bourdain has never been to Waffle House. And so he says, "We're leaving." They leave this expensive, you know, five-star restaurant, and they go to Waffle House. And Sean Brock starts ordering um, pecan waffles, patty melts, a pork chop, a T-bone steak, and just, you know, they finish with hash browns and eggs. They eat everything on the menu, and it's amazing and it's disgusting all at the same time. <laughs> and as they are eating, then the like montage of this video of them just gorging themselves on greasy, terrible food is, is rolling. There's this voiceover, and Anthony Bourdain says this. It is indeed marvelous, talking about the Waffle House. <laughs> it is indeed marvelous, an irony-free zone where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts, where everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inebriation is welcome. <laughs> it's warm, yellow glow, of beacon, a beacon of hope and salvation. Inviting the hungry, the lost, and the seriously hammered all across the South to come inside. A place of safety and nourishment. It never closes. It's always, always faithful. It's always there for you. Now, doesn't that sound wonderful and disgusting? (laughs) Because what he's describing is what we all want. We all want to know that we have a community that is always, always there for us, that will never close, and yet deep down we know that we can never find that at the Waffle House. Because that sort of love doesn't come from a consumer relationship. You can't get it on Facebook, you can't buy it with money, but it will require your time. It won't happen overnight but the one thing it will request require of you is time. Community takes time, relationships take time. You can't buy community with money, but it requires your time. And as long as you make community an option, a thing that would be nice to get to if you've got the time, if the busyness of life doesn't squeeze it out, you will always approach community as a consumer good. And it will never provide the lasting, meaningful points of connection that you need to actually flourish and thrive. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to set you free from the trap to busyness and enable you to enter into community not because of what it will give you, but in order to give yourself to community. And when you do that, the fringe benefit will be that your life will be filled with meaning because you are surrounded by people who know you and who still love you. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you that you love us enough to come and speak to us, to tell us what you're like and to tell us what we are like. We thank you for relationships. God, we pray, I pray, that you would help us to know the deep, abiding faithfulness of Jesus, his covenant love for us. And because um, he has loved us so thoroughly that he has removed every need that we would ultimately have, he sets us free to move towards others with that same life-giving love. God, I pray that um, Resurrection sea would be a place uh, that is always present, that is always open, and is always ready to welcome any who show up. Not because of what they bring to the table, but simply in order to love human beings. God, that's what we were created to do. Would you please do that in us? In Jesus' name, amen.